We exist to see God glorified and churches multiplied by declaring and displaying the gospel. Please turn to Nehemiah chapter 13, verses 1 through 31. That's Nehemiah 13, 1 through 31. And again, chapter 13, verses 1 through 31 in Nehemiah. On that day, they read from the book of Moses in the hearing of the people. And in it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God. For they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. Now before this, Eliashib, the priest, who was appointed over the chambers of the house of our God, and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandment to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priests. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem, for in the 32nd year of Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king, and after some time I asked leave of the king, king and came to Jerusalem, and I then discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back there the vessels of the house of God with the grain offering and the frankincense. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, Why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe of the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed as treasurers over the storehouses Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant Hanan the son of Zechur, son of Mataniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service." In those days, I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys, and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads, which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, What is this evil thing you are doing, profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way, and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. As soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors be shut and gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no load might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers of all kinds of wares lodged outside Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said to them, Why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. Then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath holy. Remember this also in my favor, O my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. In those days also, I saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair, and I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. 
Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, the son of Eliashib, the high priest, was the son-in-law of Samballat, the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleanse them from everything foreign, and I establish the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work, and I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, O my God, for good. Thanks, Mom. <laughs> hey, uh, welcome. Welcome to Emmaus. My name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors here. I've seen a lot of uh, new faces and visitors, and so um, let me just say welcome to you. I hope that you have felt um, welcome and hospitality as you've come here. And if you haven't uh, been made aware of it yet, we do have a connection table out front for us to get some more information about you. And, uh, and for us to give you a, a gift, a coffee mug with the, our little Emmaus logo on it. So we just want to say welcome that way and get connected. Uh, let me also just thank uh, Tyler and Carrington for leading us in Hymn Sunday. Uh, the, the, the only thing that I enjoy more than leading Hymn Sunday is being led on Hymn Sunday by uh, Tyler. And so, um, so thank you guys. And um, hey, it, just one more thing. It bears... Uh, it, it's worth mentioning from time to time uh, from behind the pulpit, but our K through second graders, we actually dismiss after the, the music portion of our worship service, and that's very intentional. We want to have our kids with us here to see us um, worshiping and to, to participate in that aspect of our service, and let me, just, let me just say this as well. When we were trying to decide what kind of church we were going to be when it comes to family ministry. And we were making decisions like, do we keep our kids in the service the whole time? Do we dismiss some of the older ones at some point? Do we offer kids church? If so, what kind? Uh, when we came to those decisions, the main thing that we were trying to communicate is that we believe that you as parents are the primary disciplers of your kids and we want to come alongside you and help to disciple your kids that way. And so what that means is, if you, under, under your uh, you know, conviction uh, before God, come to the decision that you want to keep your kids in the service with you the entire time, that is totally fine. Like, we love that, okay? So, so let's just embrace that as a congregation. We'll just embrace the reality that from time to time, uh, some parents who are discipling their kids by keeping them in the service, we'll have to remove their kids because they're, uh, they're making a ruckus, and that's okay. We're going, to, we're going to own that as a congregation. Amen? All right, well, let's pray, and uh, we'll jump into Nehemiah chapter 13 together. We're going to conclude our study uh, through the book of Nehemiah this morning. So let's pray. Oh, Lord, we thank you this morning for your word. We thank you that you have not kept yourself silent and unapproachable, but have stooped down from your incomprehensible domain to accommodate our feeble minds with words we can read and understand. Let us therefore come now to your word with overwhelming gratitude, not taking for granted the immeasurable grace that it is to sit in this room and hear from you. Lord, we are deeply in need of hearing from your word this morning, more than we even realize. And Father, the needs of those who sit in this room are far deeper and more diverse than a mere man can adequately account for with a sermon. So we need divine and supernatural intervention. There are some in here who need specific conviction over specific sin, who need to make specific resolutions of repentance, and the mere words of a man cannot give this, but you, Holy Spirit, can transpose words spoken from this pulpit to this end. There are some in here that need specific reminders of your comfort in specific areas of their lives, and the words prepared on this page are not in and of themselves fit for such special care, but Holy Spirit, you can make them so. And there are some in this room that have specific objections to your truth and make demands to meet a specific argument this sermon is not designed to meet. But, oh, Holy Spirit, you 
you can take this sermon and make it undermine disbelief. Only you, our great God, can meet all these diverse needs represented in this room, so we beg you to do so. Let the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. We come now to the conclusion of our study through the book of Nehemiah. And in many ways, it's tragic that we even have another week in this book. This book should have ended two weeks ago when Pastor Adam preached on the holy, joyous worship of the people as they dedicated the walls and celebration. That should have been the end of this book. Right? The screen should fade to black with the echo of their laughter and shouts of joy still ringing as the credits begin to roll. That would have been a happy ending. But this book doesn't have a happy ending because it's not supposed to, right? It's the end of the first act of the drama of Scripture. And when you go to a two-act play, you don't expect for the first act to be happy. And so today, the curtain of the Old Testament closes on a bleak and nearly hopeless scene for intermission. But before we close the curtain and jump ahead to the second act, let's allow this scene to play out. So, so look with me on uh, chapter 13, verse 1. Let's read these first few verses together. On that day, they read from the book of Moses and the hearing of the people, and it was found written that no Ammonite or Moabite should ever enter the assembly of God, for they did not meet the people of Israel with bread and water, but hired Balaam against them to curse them. Yet our God turned the curse into a blessing. As soon as the people heard the law, they separated from Israel all those of foreign descent. So chapter 13 begins with one more corporate act of obedience before Nehemiah leaves the people to go back to Artaxerxes. And it comes right on the heels of reading God's word. We've seen this over and over again in this book. This is now a well-established pattern. They read the word of God, they're convicted, and then they respond appropriately. And even though we're going to see that this, this act of obedience was short-lived, we should still admire the posture of the Israelites here before the word of God, right? We see here a conceptual allegiance to the word of, to the word of God that manifests itself in action, right? So they read Deuteronomy 23, verses three through five. That's where this, this passage comes from. They read that passage that says to stay away from the Ammonite and the Moabite. And then they look up and they see a bunch of Ammonites and Moabites intermingled in their midst. And then they separate themselves, right? They had decided before they got to Deuteronomy 23, they had decided what God's word teaches, we will obey, Whatever God's word teaches, we'll obey. And then the moment that they saw that what God's word taught was not consistent with what their lives looked like, they changed their lives to conform to what scripture taught. And that's exactly the kind of posture that we should have towards this book. We should have this posture that says, whatever God's word teaches, we will obey. Now, since the issue of, of marriage and separation is going to come up again at the end of this chapter, let me just briefly take a minute to explain what's going on here so it's, it's not an obstacle for us as we continue to read. And we've mentioned this before, but let me just state this emphatically. The problem with the Ammonite and the Moabite is not racial or ethnic inferiority. That's not the problem here. That's not why the Israelites are to stay away from the Ammonites and the Moabites. Nor is it that God is, is merely in some sort of petty way holding on to a grudge. The problem with the Moabite was not his family descent. The problem with the Moabite was his family idolatry. That was the problem. And we know that's the problem because later on in this chapter, Nehemiah says as much when he uses King Solomon as an example, whose many foreign wives turned his heart towards their idols, right? We know that that is the problem because there are allowances all throughout the Old Testament for non-Israel, non-Israelite 
converts. And if you want a beautiful example of this kind of thing, look no further than the book of Ruth. Ruth was a Moabite. She was a a Moabite woman who renounced her Moabite idols, swore allegiance to Israel and Israel's covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, and was therein folded into Israel as an inheritor of God's promises. In fact, she became a direct ancestor to King David and is therefore on the same single branch as the Messiah's family tree, right? So Jesus has a Moabite, great, 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 a bunch of greats, grandma. Jesus himself has a Moabite grandma, right? So it's not the ethnic Ammonite and Moabite that the people are to separate themselves from, but the idolatrous Ammonite and Moabite. Now, with that said, let's look at what happens throughout the rest of this chapter. The the way that Nehemiah wrote chapter 13 is brilliantly tragic, right? Because it directly corresponds to the vows that were corporately taken up in chapter 10. In chapter 10, they make a bunch of promises, and in chapter 13, they break every single one of those promises. In chapter 10, the people vow not to intermarry with pagan idolaters, and in chapter 13, we see that they have broken that vow. In chapter 10, the people vow to observe the Sabbath, and in chapter 13, we see that they've broken that vow. In chapter 10, the people vow to take care of the temple, and in chapter 13, we see they've broken that vow. And in chapter 10, the people vow to support the Levites and their service to the Lord, and in chapter 13, they've broken that vow. And so, Let's quickly run through the the rest of this chapter and observe these four corporate sins in turn. Look at verse four with me. This is the first corporate sin that we see here, mistreatment of the temple. Now before this, Eliashib the priest who was appointed over the chambers of the house of God and who was related to Tobiah, prepared for Tobiah a large chamber where they had previously put the grain offering, the frankincense, the vessels, and the tithes of grain, wine, and oil, which were given by commandments to the Levites, singers, and gatekeepers, and the contributions for the priest. While this was taking place, I was not in Jerusalem. For in the 32nd year, King Artaxerxes, king of Babylon, I went to the king. And after some time... I asked leave of the king and came to Jerusalem, and I discovered the evil that Eliashib had done for Tobiah, preparing for him a chamber in the courts of the house of God. And I was very angry, and I threw all the household furniture of Tobiah out of the chamber. Then I gave orders, and they cleansed the chambers, and I brought back the vessels of the house of God with grain offerings and the frankincense. This scoundrel, Tobiah, simply will not go away, will he? He has showed up all throughout this book, one of the chief villains throughout this book. And we see here that Eliashib, one of the priests, actually has this treacherous and secret agreement with Tobiah. And this is the agreement. As soon as Nehemiah goes back to King Artaxerxes, you get this room in the temple as your own private pad, right? So this room that's used for holy purposes, they move all of the sacred furniture out, and then they move all of Tobiah's personal stuff in there like it's his own private pad. And this is more than just annoying, you guys. This is is high treason against God. Eliashib is abusing his spiritual authority, authority under God to show favoritism for personal gain. It's so wicked, it defiles the very room of the temple. Nehemiah and the priests have to cleanse it afterwards because this negligence negligence is so filthy in God's sight. And that's what God thinks, by the way, of abused, delegated authority. Rather than caring for this chamber of the temple out of service to God, he despised his responsibility and gave his buddy his own private room. And Nehemiah would have none of it. As soon as he got there, he threw all of Tobiah's stuff out and he brought all of the holy uh, furniture back in. Just like Jesus, 
when he flipped over the tables of the money changers, zeal for Yahweh's house consumed Nehemiah, and he had to act on it. So that's the first sin. The second sin, look at verse 10 with me. I also found out that the portions of the Levites had not been given to them, so that the Levites and the singers who did the work had fled each to his field. So I confronted the officials and said, why is the house of God forsaken? And I gathered them together and set them in their stations. Then all Judah brought the tithe, the grain, wine, and oil into the storehouses. And I appointed his treasurer, treasurers over the storehouses, Shelemiah the priest, Zadok the scribe, and Padiah of the Levites, and as their assistant, Hanan the son of Zakur, son of Metaniah, for they were considered reliable, and their duty was to distribute to their brothers. Remember me, O my God, concerning this, and do not wipe out my good deeds that I have done for the house of my God and for his service. Here we see that the Levites were not being funded for their ministry to the Lord, and as a result, they had to leave the temple and go back to their fields just to make ends meet. And as a result, the house of God was forsaken. So Nehemiah remedies the situation, and when he does so, he reminds the people just how important it is to have priests ministering on their behalf before the Lord. Right? This is important. Their negligence here, their neglect in this instance, showed what they truly valued. It showed they did not truly believe they needed the intercessory work of priests to minister before God on their behalf. They didn't think they needed it. They didn't think that having a priest intercede for them was all that important. Holding on to their own resources rather than paying the tithe to fund their ministry was more important to them than having the Levites and the priests minister on their behalf. And they didn't believe they needed intercession because they didn't believe God was so holy that he required it. And this is a grave mistake. And we should pause for even just a moment to think about it. We need a mediator to plead our case before God always because God is holy. And apart from a holy mediator interceding for us and interceding holiness for us, we aren't. So we need a mediator. Look at the corporate sin, the third corporate sin, starting in verse 15 with me. In those days I saw in Judah people treading wine presses on the Sabbath and bringing in heaps of grain and loading them on donkeys and also wine, grapes, figs, and all kinds of loads which they brought into Jerusalem on the Sabbath day. And I warned them on the day when they sold food. Tyrians also who lived in the city brought in fish and all kinds of goods and sold them on the Sabbath to the people of Judah in Jerusalem itself. You can hear his disbelief in his tone, right? Then I confronted the nobles of Judah and said to them, what is this evil thing you are doing profaning the Sabbath day? Did not your fathers act in this way and did not our God bring all this disaster on us and on this city? Now you are, do, now you are bringing more wrath on Israel by profaning the Sabbath. Verse 19, as soon as it began to grow dark at the gates of Jerusalem before the Sabbath, I commanded that the doors should be shut and gave orders to them, gave orders that they should not be opened until after the Sabbath. And I stationed some of my servants at the gates that no loads might be brought in on the Sabbath day. Then the merchants and sellers and all kinds of wares lodged outside of Jerusalem once or twice. But I warned them and said, why do you lodge outside the wall? If you do so again, I will lay hands on you. From that time on, they did not come on the Sabbath. <laughs> then I commanded the Levites that they should purify themselves and come and guard the gates to keep the Sabbath day holy. Remember this also in my favor, O oh my God, and spare me according to the greatness of your steadfast love. If you haven't been able to tell until now, Nehemiah's leadership style is very hands-on, literally, right? <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you. Uh, now, as tempting as it is, I'm going to leave the issue of threats as a leadership tactic alone for now. 
and simply point out the extreme example of Nehemiah's hatred, his violent hatred for sin. He goes to extreme lengths, extreme measures to prevent this practice of sin. And he's not satisfied with going to extreme measures to prevent the practice of his own sin. He's going to extreme measures to prevent his brothers and sisters from sinning. He's not content with merely personally obeying the word of God. He has no tolerance for the practice of sin among the midst of his own people. And this is striking because it is common for us, even for Christians, for us to assume that making a big deal of other people's sins is wrong. Like, I shouldn't make a big deal over your sin. I'll mind my business if you mind yours, right? But this is not the example that we see in Scripture. I am loving you when I make your sin my business, and vice versa. And for those of you who are covenant members here at Emmaus, this is what we've agreed to. We have agreed to stick our noses into one another's business when it comes to our sin. We have covenanted to agree to sit across the table from one another from time to time and say, what are you doing? What are you doing? That's sin, and you must stop And listen, I have been on both sides of that table and I can tell you it is grace upon grace. The Puritan pastor Ralph Venning was spot on when he wrote, other men's sins cost good men many a tear and an aching heart because sin is so contrary to God and the good of men. He's saying, if you're a good man, You're going to look at other people's sin and say, your sin breaks my heart because it's against God and against you. I can't watch you sin and not be moved by it. He goes on to say, all sin is against God. And for that reason, he who truly grieves his own sin will grieve for other men's too. Now let's look at this last corporate sin together. Starting in verse 23, in those days, I also saw the Jews who had married women of Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab, and half of their children spoke the language of Ashdod, and they could not speak the language of Judah, but only the language of each people. And I confronted them and cursed them and beat some of them and pulled out their hair. And I made them take an oath in the name of God, saying, You shall not give your daughters to their sons, or take their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. Did not Solomon, king of Israel, sin on account of such women? Among the many nations, there was no king like him, and he was beloved by his God, and God made him king over all Israel. Nevertheless, foreign women made even him to sin. Shall we then listen to you and do all this great evil and act treacherously against our God by marrying foreign women? And one of the sons of Jehoiada, son of Eliashib, the high priest, was son-in-law of Sanballat the Horonite. Therefore, I chased him from me. Remember them, O my God, because they have desecrated the priesthood and the covenant of the priesthood and the Levites. Thus, I cleansed them from everything foreign, and I established the duties of the priests and Levites, each in his work. And I provided for the wood offering at appointed times and for the first fruits. Remember me, oh my God, for good. This corporate sin is mentioned last because it is the most grievous. The intermingling of those covenanted with God with those committed to pagan idolatry threatened to create a religious syncretism that would erode and undo their worship of God entirely. And we can already see this being put into effect. Already they were in danger of losing their identity as the covenant people of God within one generation, right? The children of these interfaith marriages followed their pagan parents and did not even speak the language of God's covenant people. And Nehemiah was outraged. And I want you to notice he was especially outraged because of who tolerated 
this kind of faithlessness. There is something to say about the sin and corruption that we see here all the way at the top. Here we are informed that Eliashib, who's now the high priest apparently, who made an alliance with Tobiah earlier on in this chapter, also had cords of treachery that ran to Sanballat, the other chief enemy of the people of God. This is a man all the way at the top, and he has relationships with two of the greatest villains in this book, the chief human enemy of the Israelites here in this book. Eliashib's grandson had married Sanballat's daughter. The high priest of Israel was okay with this. The top religious leader, the one who was responsible for teaching everyone else the standard of God's holiness. If this kind of faithlessness is put on display at the top, why on earth would we expect for faithfulness to flow out from the bottom? Why would we expect that? And let this be a lesson for us. Our sin never involves ourselves alone, especially for those who lead others. Fathers and husbands, know this. You have influence beyond what can be expressed to affect the spiritual fidelity of your homes. Don't waste it. Do not waste it. Your sin is incredibly consequential in your home. Your your pursuit of righteousness is so consequential in your home. Don't waste it. Mothers, employers, friends know this. When you allow sin a foothold in your life, you are inviting rebellion from those under your influence as well. And this is why Nehemiah went to such extreme measures. He did, he did, Nehemiah comes in here and he did what Eliashib should have done when Sanballat first came came around with his daughter. He chased Sanballat from his presence. I just, I wonder what that would have, I wonder what that looks like. What does that mean that he chased him from his presence? Pretty extreme, whatever it means. Now let's double back and take some time to consider Nehemiah's repeated refrain. I haven't said anything about this prayer that he's repeated over and over again, remember me, right? It's telling that the end of this book, uh, that, the, that this book ends with such a prayer. This little prayer of Nehemiah's is both an example for us and it is a foreshadow. On the surface level, it's an example for us, right? He, he prays this three times in this chapter in verse 14 and verse 21 and verse 31, 22 and verse 31. And in many ways, this prayer of, is this prayer of Nehemiah's is Nehemiah's life in a nutshell, right? We've talked about this before in this series, this concept of living quorum Deo or before the face of God, in the presence of God, living in the presence of God. Nehemiah lives this way. He's the quintessential person who lives quorum Deo. He lives in such a way that his actions and his speech or offerings to God. They're consecrated to God as acts of worship. So he can always be in conversation with God. He can always kind of turn back that action, that thought, God, remember me for this thing. He, he longs to hear God say, well done. What a way of living, right? What a way of living. Ought we not aspire to this, brothers and sisters, to live in such a way that our every thought and action were offered up to God as worship, to aspire to hear God say, well done, to do everything out of reverence for God. So this prayer first is an example for us. We want to live our lives in such a way that we can always pause and say, remember me, oh my God. But it's also a foreshadow, right? So, so remember, the key interpretive question that we've been asking all throughout this book study, this Old Testament book study, has been, what time is it? What time is it? That is, where does this book fall within the grand story of redemption, the grand story of the Bible? Because we understand that Nehemiah, this book Nehemiah, is a book within a book. It's a scene within a larger play. It has a context. 
to it. So we ask, what time is it? And like I mentioned at the beginning of this sermon, this book lands chronologically right at the very end of the Old Testament. So it's the final scene in the first act of the Bible. And now the curtain closes and everyone here feels hopeless, right? It's a very bleak sort of scene. Curtain closes and we feel hopeless for good reason. Because up until chapter 13, the question has been bubbling up, will Israel finally obey? Will they be faithful? Will 150 years of exile finally teach them a lesson that will stick? And at the end of chapter 13, the answer is a clear and definite no. They don't get it. And Nehemiah understands this. This truth clicks for him, right? You can hear it in the tone of his pitiful prayer. Remember me, oh my God, for good. He's saying, I'm trying, Lord. I am trying. Don't look past my efforts. See my desire to see this people practice faithfulness, but something needs to happen. It's like trying to sweep water uphill. It's so tiresome. It's so hopeless. And as the first act of the drama of Scripture comes to a close, we see that Israel is out of Babylon and back in Jerusalem, but Babylon is still in Israel. Exile, as it turns out, is a condition of the heart, and nothing seems to help. All Nehemiah can do is external stuff. He can't get into the heart of the people. And so his prayer, remember me, remember this work that I'm doing for this people is an acknowledgement of his helplessness. And then the curtains close, and that's the last thing we hear. But when the curtain reopens after 400 years of silence, this prayer is taken back up again. It's taken up again, and it's transposed to a higher and brighter key in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ. This prayer is transformed into, listen, it's transformed from a helpless prayer into an effective prayer. It actually accomplishes Nehemiah prays that God would regard his faithfulness in contrast to his people. But Jesus prays that God would regard his faithfulness on behalf of his people. His whole life and death and resurrection and intercession at the right hand of God is this prayer. It is this prayer, remember me for their good, oh my God. It's this prayer, forgive them for they know not what they do. It's this prayer, I am not ashamed to call them my brothers and my sisters. This is why the sad ending of Nehemiah is actually wonderful. It's wonderful, right? I mentioned before, there is no happy ending with the book of Nehemiah because there's no Jesus there. There is no happy ending at the book of Nehemiah because there is no Jesus there. Only Jesus makes stories and happily ever after. And by the end of Nehemiah, we're left longing and aching for a mediator who is better than Nehemiah, who's more effective than Nehemiah. Because Nehemiah's mediation at its very best could never transform the hearts of God's stubborn people. But Jesus' mediation is designed, it's designed to do just that. The very thing that Nehemiah's mediation couldn't do is the thing that Jesus' mediation is designed to do. And he took the bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to them, saying, this is my body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, the cup after they had eaten, saying, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And what is entailed in this new covenant that Jesus brings about with his blood? What is entailed in this new covenant? Precisely the thing that Israel was unable to do, obedience to God's law. This new covenant that Jesus purchases and ushers in with his blood has this wonderful blessing in it. The spirit of God takes the law of God and he writes it on the hearts of the people of God. The dilemma 
that makes Nehemiah throw up his hands in exhaustion is what Jesus spreads his hands on the cross to resolve. And this brings me to the first of my pastoral charges. Charge number one is this. Christian, you are charged to behold Jesus and celebrate. Oh, celebrate this man. Marvel at this man, this perfect mediator, this ever constant intercessor, this effective prayer. God forbid we ever take for granted how privileged we are to live right now, at this moment in human history, on this side of the life, death, resurrection, and ascension of Jesus Christ. What would Nehemiah say if we could go back in time and talk to him? If we could go back in time and tell him how God was going to answer his prayer. Let's, let, let me play it out for you. I'll, 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 I'll speak, I won't speak for Nehemiah, I'll, I'll speak as me talking to Nehemiah. What would he say if I could go back in time and say this? Hey, Nehemiah, guess what? The Messiah is going to come and answer your prayer. And he's going to come in a way you would never expect. The second person of the Trinity Oh yeah, by the way, Yahweh is actually triune. The second person of the Trinity. (laughs) Nehemiah, he's going to take on a human nature. And in that nature, he's going to defeat his people's oppressors. No, not Eliashib, not Sanballat, not Tobiah, not even Persia or the Greco-Romans. They're coming soon enough. No, those aren't the oppressors that this Messiah is going to redeem his people from, Nehemiah. The oppressors he's going to free his people from are actually much deeper. They're the oppressors that keep Israel in a perpetual state of failure and disobedience. He's going to free his people from the oppression of sin. How's he gonna do that? Nehemiah, you will never believe this but he's actually going to live out a perfect, spotless, complete, perfect, righteous life before the Father. He's going to obey the law, that righteous requirement of the Father that his people, your people, keep falling short of. He'll live up to it perfectly. And then, brace yourself, Nehemiah, he's going to die. He's going to suffer under the judicious wrath of the Father as if he were the one who were failing to meet the requirements of the law. And then, as if that's not crazy enough, he's going to be resurrected three days later. And then he'll ascend to the right hand of God. And from there, he's going to send out his spirit to apply his life, death, and resurrection to his people. What does that mean? Nehemiah, I'm glad you asked. It means that the righteousness of this Messiah is now imputed to me. It's given to me. And it also means that all my sin and disobedience was imputed to him. So in the sight of God, my sin has been punished already. And I have a perfect righteous record. Yeah, Nehemiah, right now, I'm wearing the robes of the Messiah's righteousness. God looks at me and he doesn't even see my sin because the Messiah is interceding for me perfectly. Oh yeah, that's right, Nehemiah. No more priests like Eliashib. No more scoundrels like Eliashib. This Messiah is my high priest. Jesus Christ is the last one we'll ever need. And not only that, but I actually have the Holy Spirit of God taking up residency within me. So now in Christ, who is my perfect obedience, I am empowered to be obedient. What would Nehemiah say if we could say all of that to him? Would his heart not explode with worship and gratitude? And so should ours. So that's the first charge. Behold Jesus and celebrate Second charge is this, behold Jesus, Christian, and obey. All of this means, listen, all of this means we should expect different results in our lives than the Israelites here. We should expect that. If you recall a couple weeks ago, Pastor Josh 
said that the grace of God in Christ means that when we resolve to obey God's word and fail, forgiveness is guaranteed, right? So we don't have to wonder if forgiveness is there for us like the Israelites do. We know that forgiveness is there for us, and that is a glorious truth. But the grace of God is more than a safety net we fall off uh, a safety net we fall off into when we fall off of the cliff of disobedience. It's at least that, but it's much more than that. The grace of God is also balance to walk that cliff and not fall. We should not look at the Israelites here and despairingly conclude that we are destined to a perpetual life of failure. To look at them, make all these promises, and then break all these promises and just say, What's the point of trying? I'm just gonna fail. I, that, that is who I am. I'm just going to fail all my life. No, you don't have to despairingly conclude that. They didn't have the indwelling presence of the Spirit of God. You do, Christian. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you, Romans 8, 11. Now listen, absolute perfection is unattainable in this life. So what that means is we are never done with the work of rooting out sinful patterns and confessing ungodliness. That was Pastor Josh's point in that sermon. But that doesn't mean that we should not expect genuine progress and growth in the Christian life. Titus 2, 11 through 12, which was also preached by Pastor Josh, says, for the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, period? No. It says, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. The grace of God has a backbone. The grace of God has a backbone. It is a safety net, but it's not just a safety net. It's also fire in your bones and strength in your hands to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live righteously. So that's your second charge. Behold Jesus and get to work. Put your hand to plow and dig and sweat. That savior of yours has not left you empty-handed. He has resourced you to follow him and resemble him. So that's your second charge. The third charge is for any non-believers who happen to be here this morning. Non-Christian, you are charged in light of all of this to behold Jesus and ache. Ache. Know this, unbeliever, whoever you are. I've been praying for you these past couple of weeks. And I've been praying that this beautiful Savior I have just described would awaken desire in you. I've been praying that you would become increasingly dissatisfied with life apart from him. I've been praying that you would tire of yourself, that you would shake with fear at what your self-love will cost you when you have to give an account to the God who made you and deserves your allegiance. I've been praying that you would come to this gathering, she would come to this gathering, and that you would see yourself truly as an outsider looking in. That you would see yourself outside of joy and satisfaction and peace with God and that you would longingly look in. She would peek over the, peek over the wall and longingly look in. If that's you, would you like to get in on these promises? Would you like to have a track record of perfect righteousness freely given to you? Would you like a new heart? Would you like to have a life that you could offer up to God as an act of worship? Would you like to have God, the very thing you were made for, peace with him? Listen, you may. You may have him. You may come to Jesus and he 
will receive you. He will receive you. If you come to him with the empty hands of faith, he will fill them with himself. He will. But if you haven't done this, please do not take this meal that we're about to celebrate together. This meal is given to the family of God, and you must be brought into the family first. That's what we want. We want you to enjoy this meal with us as a family member. So don't take it until after you have joined this family of God. Instead of taking this meal, I would encourage you to wrestle with these things while you watch us partake. And I would invite you to ask us what it looks like to be brought into our family. We would love to introduce you to our friend and brother, Jesus. And believers, don't lose sight of what this meal is, this this meal of communion. In this act of worship, we are communing with one another and with our great mediator, Jesus Christ. His broken body and shed blood purchased this meal of fellowship for us. And as we take, I want you to let the physical consumption remind you of how concrete Jesus' ministry is. I want you to take the bread and the cup and hear Jesus pray for you. Hear him say, I'm not ashamed to call these my brothers and sisters. Remember me for their good. And as you swallow down and ingest the bread and the juice, I want you to ingest this truth that the Father answers that prayer request gladly, my son. Remember me for their good, gladly. That's what happens. That's that's what we are celebrating in as we enjoy this meal together. I'm gonna pray and then ask for the believers here to come down to my left. You'll take from the bread and then dip it in the cup and return to your seat uh, to my right here. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, you have met with us. You have met with us these last minutes in the proclamation of your sacred word. And we ask now that you would meet with us in the celebration of your sacred meal. As we look to you in faith and obedience to your command to do this in remembrance of you, we ask that you would minister to us in ways we cannot even calculate. Let this act of worship be pleasing to you. Let it be a celebratory act of fellowship with one another and let it propel us to set our minds on things above where you are, Lord Jesus, our life and our treasure. May our enjoyment of this meal entice those in this room who do not know you and may it draw them into the fellowship of your family. We pray these things in your strong and mighty name, Jesus. I love you, church. Come and take. Thank you for watching this Amaze KC podcast. More information about Amaze KC can be found available online at www.amazekc.com.